I want you to imagine for a moment Peter, but not Peter the apostle, not Peter even the disciple, not even Peter the grown man who was a fisherman on the shores or the lake of Galilee before Jesus captured his heart. But I want you to imagine Peter as a little boy growing up there near Capernaum in the region of Galilee. That little lake was the center of Peter's life. And his father, day by day and week after week, would have taught him the teaching or the uh, fishing trade. And as his dad and Peter worked together, spent time together, his father would have told Peter stories. As they counted and cleaned and prepared the fish for sale, as they took them to the market, his father would have told him stories of hope for the people of Israel. And as they bought and sold and traded and tried to scratch out a living in difficult times under the thumb of the Roman Empire, Peter's dad would tell him the stories of the coming deliverer who would set the people of Israel free. He would tell Peter that the blood of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob flowed through little Peter's veins. And that one day, a descendant of the greatest king that Israel ever saw, David, would come and set the people of Israel free. And Peter's dad, along with all the parents in Israel, would have told their children about this coming figure, a man they called the Christ, a title which means the anointed one. And after telling Peter of past anointed priests and prophets and kings, all from the Old Testament era, he would tell Peter and remind him of someone more anointed than all of them, the anointed one, the Christ, the one who would fulfill all their hopes and dreams. And when the anointed one came, when the Christ came, he would drive out the Roman oppressors. And as a descendant of David, he would reestablish the glorious throne of David. David came and slew Goliath. The Christ would come and slay Rome. With miraculous power and wisdom from the Spirit, the Christ would reign supreme. The glory of God would come upon the land once again. And this ideal king would establish an ideal kingdom. And Peter, little Peter, along with every other child in Israel at the time, would have heard these stories from his early childhood. God's prophets had stopped speaking centuries earlier. You know, the, the book of Malachi being the final book of God's revelation there in the Old Testament. But as the decades turned into centuries and the, the centuries ticked by, Jewish literature filled in the void. And from time to time, they would speak of this coming figure who would deliver the people. And they stirred up that region, people like Peter's parents, to hope longingly for the Christ. So the question in Peter's era was, when would the Christ come? What would he be like? And when would this perfect king arrive? Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, we already know the answer to these questions. Mark used the first words of his book 
to introduce us to Jesus. He said in the first line of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the whole book of Mark has been building up to this moment, the moment where the disciples are now going to realize that Jesus is the Christ. As the readers, we already know it. Mark sees Jesus as the Christ. But now his disciples are going to make that confession. And so today we're going to watch this pivotal scene unfold and learn for ourselves who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Let's read in verse 27 and 28 about Jesus being the Christ. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Now, the, the setting of this whole encounter is ideal. Mark tells us that it happened at Caesarea Philippi, which has quite a backstory. It was called Caesarea uh, because it wanted to, it was meant to honor Rome's Caesar, Caesarea, Caesar, uh, Caesarea, so to speak. But since there were other Caesareas throughout the empire, and since this Caesarea had been reestablished by Philip the Tetrarch, uh, they called it Caesarea Philippi. Uh, but it had not been built so much as a way to honor Philip, as a way to honor Caesar sitting on the throne in Rome. Before its reestablishment, however, as Caesarea Philippi, it was known as Peneus. Uh, which was a way to give a city a name which honored the Greek god Pan. Now, Pan was a half-man, half-goat, and was thought to be the guardian of the pasture lands, protecting flocks and protecting nature. And historically, there in Caesarea Philippi, or in Peneus, uh, Pan had been worshipped in a cave on the outskirts of town. And the cave that Pan had been worshipped in was the home of one of the Jordan River's main tributaries. In other words, the Jordan River started in a cave in Caesarea Philippi. Now the Jordan, of course, is an important river in the Bible. And an important river in Israel's history in that it was the river that God held back so the people of Israel could come into the promised land so many years earlier. God had done this miraculous work for his people there at the Jordan River. So there they were, Jesus and his disciples, in a region known for its worship or honor of Caesar, its <clears throat> devotion to Greek gods and the Greek way of thinking, and its history with the God of Israel. And right there in that place, Jesus asks the question. First, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, there's Caesar. There's the shadow of Greek mythology. There's the God of the Old Testament. But who do people say I am? 
Now, the disciples told Jesus exactly what people were saying at that time about him. John the Baptist was the first response. Okay, we've already seen in a previous study in Mark chapter 6 how Herod, uh, the man who killed John the Baptist, he thought this way. He thought that John had been raised back to life in the form of Jesus. John had preached repentance and the coming of the kingdom. So did Jesus. John had ministered in the wilderness. So did Jesus. Now, Elijah was the second response. He was really considered the gold standard of Israel's prophets. Uh, but he had been off the scene for over 800 years by the time Jesus came onto the scene. Now, Elijah, he's interesting in part because he never died. He was instead translated uh, into the presence of God at the end of his ministry. Now, this fact, combined with the last words of the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Words which indicated that Elijah would come again before the great and awesome day of the Lord caused some people to think that Jesus was Elijah. There was one more response that the disciples mentioned to Jesus, and it's that people said he was one of the prophets. Moses had been told that God would one day send a prophet like Moses to Israel. And Jesus' attitude was similar to many of the prophets that came before him. He wept like Jeremiah. In fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that some people said that he was Jeremiah. He confronted the authorities like the prophet Elijah. He rebuked the religious leaders like Ezekiel. And since many believe that God would send one last prophet before the Messiah came, Many wondered if Jesus was that man. Now, of course, we know, looking back into the story, that John the Baptist, Elijah, and all the prophets, they pointed to Jesus. But no one, apparently, at that time, thought about Jesus in that way. None of the popular concepts of Jesus had anything to do with him being the Christ that they were waiting for. They all thought highly of Jesus, John Elijah, the prophets, but none of them thought that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David who would again sit on Israel's throne. These misperceptions about Jesus are made clearer when we consider that no one in the whole book of Mark up to this point has gotten Jesus' identity totally correct. The crowds are confused. The disciples are wondering who he is. And the religious leaders have seemingly made up their minds already about Jesus. I should probably correct something I just said. In a sense, no human had made a correct assessment about Jesus. But Mark has told us three times that the demons said correct things about Jesus. Sometimes they called him the Holy One of God, and at other times they called him the Son of God. So though people did not know, the demons did know. But all humans are in the dark at this point. They're still on the outside. They don't know who Jesus really is. So why did Jesus ask his disciples about the opinions 
of other people. Surely it was not because Jesus was insecure and wanted to know if people liked him and if he was popular. You know, he knew how people felt about him. He didn't even need access to this information from the disciples. Why did he want them to state the positions of other people? Perhaps Jesus was wanting to nudge his disciples toward declaring their own convictions about him and thought that this would be a good step in that direction. I mean, you know how it is. It's often so much easier to summarize someone else's views, you know, they said this or they said that, than to state our own opinions. And this might have been a way for Jesus to ease them towards confessing him as the Christ. It also might have, might have served as a way for Jesus to get them thinking. You know, they had been contemplating his identity for a long time. Remember in the boat, who then is this that calms the wind and the wave? Each episode they, they'd witnessed up to this point brought up the question, who is this man? But they are now close to making the right decision about Jesus. And this first question might have pushed them over the edge. In other words, it might have been a way for Jesus to say, what do others think? And for them to think to themselves as they said the answer of others, what do I think? Who do I think Jesus is? But I think this also had a preparatory effect on these men. You see, there was no shortage of answers and opinions about Jesus at that time. And these men needed to believe and preach things about Jesus that were unpopular, things that put them in the minority vantage point. Listing the opinions of others would help them understand that it would take a backbone to think about Jesus in ways that other people didn't. They'd be part of a small segment of society called the church one day. And they needed to get used to being different, to being the minority vantage point. And this started with the way that they viewed Jesus. But after asking them what others thought, Jesus, verse 29, asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Here we see that once Jesus asked them, how others thought about him, he asked them the question, but who do you say that I am? In other words, now that you've told me what everyone else thinks about me, now that you've considered their claims and their convictions, who do you say that I am? What are your convictions? You've been with me all this time. Who am I to you? Now, this question is an all-important question. It doesn't matter if you like the morals of Christianity. It doesn't matter if you find the community of church, the, the church, an inviting place, a place where you've found friendship. It doesn't matter if you think your children need to be around the good people of the church. It doesn't matter if you religiously attend church services or read your Bible without fail. If you get the answer to Jesus's question wrong, you do not have something of true value. If you fail to answer this question correctly, 
you fail to have real biblical Christianity. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Who do you say Jesus is? This is the central question of Mark's book and the central question of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Now, Peter answered the question. For good or bad, Peter was often the spokesperson for the whole group of disciples. And God had sort of made him the leader there, the first among equals in the rest of that group. And his answer was straightforward and simple in Mark's gospel. He said, you are the Christ. Now, like I said earlier, from the cradle, Peter had heard stories of the coming Christ. He'd heard about the descendant of David, the king, the final prophet, the one with the glorious kingdom, the anointed one, the great rescuer of Israel. And now Peter is ready to confess. He tells Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the one for whom we've waited all these years. You're the one who will lift us from our despair and bring us into glory. You are the one who will fulfill God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He would have been meaning or saying to Jesus, you know, Jeremiah said that days would come when God would raise up for David a righteous branch who would reign as king, deal wisely, and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, we will all be saved and dwell securely. And Jesus, you are that branch that Jeremiah spoke of. Isaiah said that the spirit of the Lord would be on that offshoot or branch, that he would have wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of God. He will judge the earth with righteousness, deciding with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness, Isaiah said, would be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Great peace will come when he comes and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Peter would have said, Jesus, you are that glorious person. I know who you are, Jesus. Others think that you're John. Others think you're Elijah. Others think you're a prophet, but I know who you really are. Nathan, the prophet, told David years ago that God would raise up a descendant from David to establish a forever throne with a forever kingdom. And Jesus, you are that descendant of David, you are the Christ. You see, when Peter said this to Jesus, it was a loaded statement. I've concluded, Peter says, for the group that you are the Christ. And you know, Peter was right. Jesus is the offshoot of David. He is the king of glory. He is the one who will usher in everlasting peace for his people. He will set all that is wrong aright. But before we move on in this passage, let's just rejoice 
that Jesus is this long-awaited Christ. Let's celebrate that he's the one who was promised. He's the son of righteousness, spoken of in Malachi 4, verse 2, who shall rise with healing in its wings. Elijah foreshadowed him. The prophets foretold of him. And John the Baptist prepared the way before him. But only Jesus is the Christ. And he has come. And one day, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and following, we who are alive, who are left until the second coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And we will celebrate that the Christ has come. Okay, but after Peter made this confession, this beautiful confession, Jesus gave an interesting charge to his men, followed by a brand new teaching that he had not yet introduced to them. So let's consider it in verse 30 and 31. It says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, all of this that Jesus just said is shocking. You know, the whole book of Mark has built up to this particular moment. The first words of the book, like I showed you earlier, tell us that Jesus is the Christ. But as we have been reading through Mark, we learn that nobody knows that Jesus is the Christ. And now finally, someone knows. The disciples know. They realize that Jesus is the Christ. And his first directive after this moment of revelation is that they would be silent. He strictly charged them, verse 30, to tell no one about him. Now at that point, he didn't want them telling anyone that he was the Christ. Why is that? Well, the reason he exhorted them to silence is found in the new teaching he began to give them in verse 31, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This was not at all the way that they thought of the Christ, that they thought of the Messiah. Those stories Peter was told from childhood, they did not include the suffering, the rejection, and the death and ultimate resurrection of the Christ. They thought that Christ came to conquer, not suffer. They saw him as a victor, not a victim. They thought he would be widely received, not widely rejected. They thought he would kill, but not be killed. And if they had gone out of Caesarea Philippi that day, broadcasting that the Christ had come, the whole region would have had the wrong idea about Jesus. You know, he will fulfill all those prophecies they were waiting for. 
all the prophecies about Davidic glory and righteousness and peace covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. But that will happen at his second coming. His first coming, it had to end with death and resurrection. And notice how Jesus announced his suffering and his death. It says in verse 31 that he began to teach them that he must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. The religious leaders like the elders or the chief priests, the scribes, they would conspire to end Jesus. He would not grow old and die a natural death. No, he would be killed specifically. But Jesus didn't say that all of this would happen. He said this must happen. It had to occur. There was no other way. This was the Father's will. Jesus was compelled to do it. But why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to suffer? Why did Jesus think that he must be killed? Well, let me suggest three reasons. First, Jesus had to suffer and be killed because the Old Testament had predicted it. You know, though Israelites like Peter had clung to prophecies about the glorious coming of the Christ, there were also some dark hints throughout the Old Testament that spoke of the suffering servant, the suffering Christ. Places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are good examples that made it clear that the Christ would be rejected and suffer death. Second, Jesus had to suffer and be killed because God's nature demanded it. God is holy, meaning that God is perfect and pure. He cannot interact with anything unholy or, or unclean. Friendship with God is impossible when in an unholy state. But God is also love. Jesus' death was the natural outworking of the holiness and love of God. The Son of God dying to satisfy God's holiness and make everyone who believes in Jesus holy like God. And now, because of the cross, the love of God has access to all who believe in Christ. But third, Jesus had to suffer and be killed because we needed it. Before Jesus could produce the external and physical blessings attached to the coming Davidic king, he had to provide the cross so that we could have spiritual cleanness and spiritual blessings. So he came to defeat the principalities and powers. He came to set the prisoner free. He came to bring forgiveness and pardon before God. He came to deal with our greatest foe, sin within. Yes, this is the great love of God. You see, when we love others, even when we love others sacrificially, there's usually benefit that we receive. But the triune God is always without need. He is perfect. Nothing can be added to him. He does not love us out of his need, but our need. This is why Jesus had to suffer and be killed. But all of this was new for the disciples. 
So Jesus began to teach them about his coming death and resurrection. At various points throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to talk to them about his suffering, and he'll talk about it clearly and openly. But they never fully understood on that side of the cross. Here, though, they're shocked. And Peter responds for the whole group. Okay, so let's end by looking at the reply of Peter and the reply of Jesus. In verse 32, it says that he said all this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, now remember, Peter had all these preconceived ideas about the Christ. Many of those ideas had been shaped by the poets and the authors of his era. Many of them had been shaped by the pages of the Old Testament Bible. Some of them were accurate, the ideas Peter had, and some of the ideas were inaccurate. But here, when he heard the plain teaching of Jesus, that Jesus would suffer and be killed, Peter could take it no longer. He took Jesus aside and he began rebuking Jesus. Now, Jesus saw that Peter was not alone in this rebuke. Jesus turned and saw, it says, all the disciples there. The idea is that they were standing there approving of Peter's message. He had to rebuke Peter and by extension, all of them for Peter's rebuke. So with stern words, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, it doesn't get much stronger than this as a rebuke. Peter's sentiments, Jesus is saying, came from the very pit of hell itself. To avoid the cross is satanic in nature for Jesus. It is not the way that God thinks, Jesus said, but the way that man thinks. And Jesus needed to rebuke the concept right away. You see, all book long, Mark has wanted us to wonder, who is this man? And now we have our answer. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the great rescuer who will bring in everlasting righteousness. He's the branch of David. He is the Christ. But the Christ must be killed. Jesus is the Christ, but because of sin, in order to do all the glorious things promised in the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus would have to suffer and die. His murder on the cross was an absolute necessity for a lost and broken humanity. And humanity, like Peter did on this day, struggles with this message. When we set our minds like Peter did on the things of man, we are repulsed at the idea that we are so lost that God had to die in our place. We hate the idea that we are under the wrath of God without the cross. It says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Always remember this. The message of satanic origin, which appeals to the soul of man, is that 
The cross is foolishness. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central message of Christianity. It is anticipated all throughout the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell about the life of Jesus. It is recorded in detail, lengthy accounts at the close of each one of those gospels. It's what the early believers preached throughout the world. And it is expounded upon and applied to our lives in the epistles. The cross of Christ is absolutely central to Christianity. Without it, we have nothing. It was not popular when they, when they preached it. It is not popular today. And it has never been popular anywhere at any time. It is always the minority, usually the extreme minority view. But the importance of the cross is the reason that Peter needed to be quiet. Until he recognized the centrality of Jesus' cross, Peter did not have Christianity. All he could do was regurgitate the things of man with no real benefit to his hearers. He would only lead them astray. He could talk all day long about Jesus' life and Jesus' miracles and Jesus' teachings. But without the cross, it was all for nothing. Thankfully, Peter and most of the disciples, all of them but Judas, they came around. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Spirit began giving them understanding. And eventually, they would say with Paul the Apostle, Far be it from us to glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a true test for Christianity. Do you think highly of the cross? Do you glory in the cross? Or are you offended by it? Do you despise and belittle its message? Only the one who celebrates the cross has true Christianity. So who is this man? He's the Christ. And the Christ must be killed. But humanity struggles with this message. But I would encourage you to be one of those who says, it is the power of God to salvation.